0: Some of you, I know you were on this thing called spring break, Uh, and so you may not have been here in the last couple of weeks, but we started talking about a couple of weeks ago how in the Gospel of Luke it says Jesus turned and faced Jerusalem, and from that point on, the entire gospel just changes. Everything starts to to move as a crow flies directly toward Jerusalem, and everything that happens, it happens along the way. It's important because once you know where this is going, then it changes what just happened. So last week, we said that uh, the first stop after Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem or toward the cross, the first stop was in a Samaritan village where he confronted our prejudice. And I think we all have it. I said last week, prejudice and racism are not the same thing. Racism is a form of prejudice, but prejudice is a much larger term. One can therefore have lots of minorities in their life and still be prejudiced in other areas because of blind spots. Though racism is a terrible, insidious prejudice that we need to root out of the church of all places. Agreed? But I was reading in Luke 9 when uh, Jesus was, um, he was talking to his disciples, and his disciples came to him, and they said, Lord, we saw people that were, we saw a guy that was casting out demons in your name, but he was not one of us, and so we tried to stop him. Literally, what he said was, he is not walking along with us. What the New Living Translation says is, he's not in our group. (laughs) We saw a man who was casting out demons in your name, but he is not in our group. And so we told him to stop. And Jesus said, anyone who is not against you is for you. In other words, if you follow Jesus, you don't get to choose your company. He chooses your company not you. You choose your friends. But he will always put people in your company that are not in your friends. And part of life's ambition is to take people that God has already put in our company and make them part of our friends. If you think about it, this uh, is a generation which speaks highly of community, the importance of community. But if you look around you, Most of the people in your community are people that you have chosen. So Bonhoeffer said sometimes it is not a love for community that really drives us, it's our vision of community that we truly love, and more than community itself. Real community is the community that Jesus assembles for us, and we learn to make those players part of our life are you still with me this is not the fantasy football we don't get to choose who all of our players are and put only our favorite ones in our circle he chooses that and then we find ways to put them in our circle okay I'll say it that's right Steve that's right So as they're walking along the way, then three would-be disciples come up to Jesus, and two of them volunteer say, hey, I'll follow you, you know, wherever you go. And the third one, Jesus calls out and says, I want you to follow me. Uh, and what they find out in this conversation is that Jesus is going to take on not just our prejudice, but our priorities. Do you guys have a junk drawer in your house, anywhere in your house? Uh, It's maybe a small thing like this that grew to something like this, and then it grew to something like a room, and then finally another garage that you... Maybe it's just in your desk, or maybe it's in the basement, it's in the garage, it's on a, it's a place where you just throw stuff as it accumulates over time. Think for a moment, if you can, what is in that junk drawer? Can you name, let's say, three things? Without looking, name three things that you know for sure are in the junk drawer. Find somebody, go. This is killing you. Candles, three-prong adapters, extension cords, batteries, Allen wrenches. All right, all right. Two other questions. You really won't have time to discuss these, but one of the questions is, how did all that stuff get in that drawer? I mean, who put all that in there? I bet you didn't put it all in. It just sort of got in there over time. And then the second question is, why is it still in the drawer? Why have you not found another place like a wastebasket or a garage or someplace to move that? And the answer is because you, you, you didn't just go out into life and collect all of these things and say, I need to fill a junk drawer. What happened was you were setting out your life, figuring things out, and then as you needed something, you brought it into the house and you set it on the counter. You used it for a while, but when you stopped using it, it got demoted from the counter to the junk drawer. And that happened again and again. And You didn't go from one to ten things. You went from one to ten things one thing at a time until the junk drawer just got cluttered. And everything in it, probably if it's like ours, is detached from everything else that is in it. So it's, it's, it's a conglomeration or an accumulation of things that were added over time that are detached from everything else that is in it. It's too valuable to move it out to the garage because, you know, it might be worth something or you might need it. when you, But it's not valuable enough to move it onto the counter or the dresser Or were you going out the door? So it goes in the junk drawer. Which Life's kind of that way. Now, you knew we'd get philosophical about this. Life is kind of that way when you think about it. It's busy. It's overcrowded. It's full of stuff that is too much stuff for the space that is allowed. It's always expanding, never going down. You didn't add everything that is in your life. It accumulated one thing at a time. Not because you were trying to fill up a week, but because you added one commitment or person or obligation at a time, and then when you added it, it turned into a responsibility or a deadline. And then soon after that, it hardened into an expectation. <laughs> now people are expecting these things from you, and so you add them to your growing list of commitments. And before you know it, you have gone from one commitment to ten commitments, one commitment At a time. Now, I don't think we do this on purpose. I think we suffer what Fred Hirsch calls the tyranny of small things. And what he means by that is we never really push back and ask ourselves the big things. Instead, we clutter our lives with small things. We never ask ourselves, what is it that I do better than anything else? We ask ourselves, what is due today? So we don't ask ourselves, what are God's intentions for the world? It's too philosophical, it's too out there, too ethereal and abstract. Instead we ask ourselves, what will they think if I don't do that? It's a small question, not a bad question. It's just a small question. And so what happens is we start chasing a series of small questions. How are we going to pay for that? And over time, those questions, while still important, are not important enough to organize the rest of our life, but they're too important to throw away. We still have to answer them. And so they get shoved into this junk drawer and our lives become chock full of clutter. What I'm learning is that the problem is uh, not that we uh, have too many commitments. Uh, the problem is that we don't have any priorities. Let me say that again. The problem with a busy life is not a problem with pleasing people or saying yes too many times. It's a problem of a lack of direction. Because we don't know the one thing we're supposed to do, we start saying yes to everything else that comes along, including things that we make up in our heads. I wonder what they're thinking of me now. And that becomes a new guiding principle for us. And we chase that for a little longer. And then something else comes along. What don't I have? Oh, that would be nice. Let's have that. And now I chase that. I lack direction. I lack a priority. A few things about this I think will help clear the air, then we'll get to the text. The text should be self-evident. By the time we get there, relax. One is uh, you can't have two priorities. You can only have one. The word is the Latin word, prioritas, which simply means that which comes before or that which is prior. So when Jesus said you can't serve two masters, he was speaking a truth That's an objective reality. It wasn't a religious principle. It's a principle of life. He wasn't saying, you can't serve two masters because I won't let you. He was saying, you can't serve two masters because it's not possible. Serving two masters is like adding a fourth line to a triangle. The moment you do it, it's no longer a triangle. It's an oxymoron. So if you Have two masters, you have no masters. You have two commitments, but you don't have a single priority because there is nothing that comes before all other things. Still with me? So the way we did this uh, some years ago when I was counseling people, we used to do this thing with Plato's triangle. Now, Plato didn't draw a triangle, but he did talk about the ultimate Good, And so I would ask people, whether they were teens or married couples, I would ask them to draw like a pyramid. And then on the bottom of the pyramid, I would put like four squares and I would say, can you give me like four things that are the most important things in your life?
1: So they always go,
0: God. Because <laughs> I'm a preacher. That's what they're supposed to say. Uh, oh, God. And then after that, they would say spouse or family, you know. Good. And then after that, they would say job. And then maybe something like loyalty to the Detroit Lions, you know. It's right up there to the top. So then you ask them, well, let's suppose that a tragedy happens. And you have to drop one of these. Which one do you drop? And which three do you move to the next layer? And this is something of a quandary. So they're asking themselves, well, I know it's God because you're a preacher. And I know it's my spouse because she's sitting right next to me. Now, the question is, is it going to be my job or my loyalty to the lions? And he thinks to himself and says, well so much for that job. It's the loyalty to the lions. So now he has God and then family and then lions. And then you say, now imagine that God says, I want one of those. You're going to drop them. Which two do you take? So he says, well, you're a preacher, so it's God. (laughs) And then it's Love for my wife. Good answer. So you see, you see how, this, how this works is you have to play the game until you hit the pinnacle. And the point is that you can't do this in 30 minutes. You have to do it over time. You need situations To help you make that, you'll say anything in an office, but you need situations to help you decide which thing's going to move to the pinnacle, which is the priority. Because once you get that, it reorganizes everything else. See, and until you have that, what you have is multitasking. You'll just shift from one commitment to the next, the moment one of those commitments are about to leave you, someone says, you're not taking this relationship seriously enough. Boom! That relationship becomes your priority. Then you go to work three weeks later and they say, you know, you're really not producing as much as... Boom! (laughs) So the relationship... And you move that to the top. So because we don't have priorities, we have rotating priorities. We cycle them in and out of the top depending on whatever the crisis is at that time in our lives. If we could name a priority and stick to it, it would reorganize everything else. This is what I think is happening in this passage in Luke. Let me be clear about this. I do not think that this is an evangelistic encounter. I have misread this. I thought this was a story of three people coming to Jesus. That is not what this is. Read this text again, verse 56 says, that they left that village and they were walking on their way into another village. While they were walking, in the context, while they were walking on their way into another village, then a guy came up to Jesus in verse 57 and said, I will follow you wherever you go. One more time, he said this to Jesus while they were walking on the way. And you don't get this sense that this is an altar call. You get a sense that there's an urgency, that Jesus is headed on the way to Jerusalem, and the fact that he is going to Jerusalem to die on the cross means that there is a new sense of direction to this person's life. Therefore, Every conversation that is had along the way has got to be moving in that direction. When we give an evangelistic encounter, what we do is we give people advice that works the same for everyone. So, a typical evangelism goes something like this. God loves you and wants the very best for you. But you, however, have sinned. In fact, everyone has sinned and fallen Short of the glory of God. And the problem with that is that the wages of that sin are death. But, but the gift of God through Jesus Christ is eternal life. Therefore, if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord, you shall be saved. To the glory of God. That's a typical evangelistic encounter. Are you with me? But, but, but notice something about it. I can give that same advice to a room full of thousands of people, and the advice does not vary much. I'm simply outlining the way to be saved. But that is not what's happening here. What's happening in this passage mentions no sin at all. It does not mention the need to repent, though that may be necessary. And the advice that is given from one person to the next changes as the personality changes. So this is not carte blanche advice that all people need to hear. This is Jesus walking along the way, and as he's walking A would-be disciple who fully intends to follow him approaches him and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not a conversation about sin. This is a conversation about priorities. I think when the guy runs up to him, he has a priority. And when he approaches Jesus, he hears, if you're going to follow me, you have to change priorities. Now, we can't be sure, but we think, or I do anyway, that the first guy's priority is something like comfort, convenience, safety, security, because... Whatever it is, Jesus, who knows what is in a man, puts his finger on it and goes directly to the heart and says, never tells them you can't follow. He just says, remember, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have a place to sleep tonight. There are some people for whom security or familiarity is the top of the pyramid. So the purpose of everything else in their life is to strengthen that sense of security. They don't like risk. They don't like unfamiliarity. They like structure, order. They want to know from one moment to the next what's going to happen. They feather The nest. Now, for some people, they can do it with money because they have a lot of it. So, they buy stuff that really makes them feel secure, but most of us can't afford that. So, what we build are patterns or routines that we get into, and we tell ourselves, as long as I'm in that routine, I'm in my zone, baby. That's how I really get stuff done. The problem is that that zone hardens over time, so that the moment we are called to do something outside of that safe zone, we start to resist it. A person who loves familiarity and security hates doing what is hard. They almost always tell themselves, that that there's something wrong if the journey is getting hard. What am I doing wrong? It's this drop. Because after all, God's purpose, God's purpose is to strengthen my sense of security, familiarity, safety. The next guy comes up, and uh, Jesus invites him. He says, sir, follow me. And he says, Lord, let me first bury my father. And Jesus says in this really terse reply, let the dead bury their own dead. Boy, say that at a funeral. Um, You... Go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm not sure what I hear here. I'm, I'm not positive what is here, but I hear maybe a couple of things. One of them is, I hear an allegiance to, to His Father, which I think, if you think about it, is still, for some people, the pinnacle. It's the top, it's the top of the pyramid. Everything else serves one purpose, and that is to help me fulfill my obligations to my father or to my mother. I've, had, I've played this game with 40, 50 different people before. You're in a large auditorium. You're going to be called on the stage in just a few minutes to receive the most prestigious award in your domain. You have two tickets. You can give them to anyone you want to, their front seat row. Who gets the tickets? 40, 50 times I've asked that question. One person, only one person has not named a family member in the front. And I mean mother or father. I don't mean spouse. I mean mother or father. And just about everyone but about two has made it their father. That's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you can downplay the role of men in families' lives, but it is massive for better or worse. Some people want their dad there because they want him to know that all of his hard work is paid off. Dad, thank you for getting up early. Thank you. Here's Other people, they want to prove that the old man was wrong about them. One of them said, I want that SOB to be sitting right there to prove that I am not everything he called me. You see it? It's the top of the pinnacle. It isn't his work. It's not his trophies. It's one thing. I want that guy to know that I am not. That's the top of the pinnacle. I said, dude, you got to let him go. He will not compliment you. He is not that kind of a man. You need to move on. I also hear in this guy a sense of obligation because there was a Jewish law that said that when your father had died, it was your responsibility to bury him. And so to have your father's corpse anywhere in the world was the equivalent to having it somewhere in the room. You can't just say, well, let's do something else. So Jesus doesn't say, well, let them lay there. <laughs> Jesus just says, there are other people who can do that. You go proclaim the kingdom. There are some people maybe here that are, you have a hyper sense of responsibility. Not just for the details in your life, but for everyone else's. And, and there is a sense for you that the controlling thing is The work, the job, the obligations, uh, the urgencies that come up. There's a sense that everything else stops and all blood rushes to that place where they need you. And I hear Jesus saying, not that you can't have a job, but that it can't be your priority. The last person comes up and says, Jesus, I will follow you, but first, let me go say goodbye to my family. It's pretty clear here what the priority is, isn't it? And um, Jesus says, yeah, but no person who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service. In the kingdom of God, there are some, and I know some of you are are right now, you're going to push back on this. Give me about three minutes and then you push all you want. They put family at the top of the pyramid. It's as if we work for the family. God's job is to strengthen the family. The role of religion is to protect the family. And there's reason to feel this because it's, it's very likely God gave you the spouse that you have and God gave you the family that you have. And so we're clear about this. This is not a call from Jesus to abandon your family. Be very clear about this. Let me Say that in slow motion. This is not a call to because some of you need to hear that. You're all about ready to abandon them. This is not a call to abandon your family. The first wedding he performed was at, the first miracle was at a wedding. Okay, when he heals the demonic boy, he gives him back to his father. When he raises the widow's son, he gives the boy back to his mother. When he's dying, he says to John, behold your mother. Clearly, family is a priority in Jesus' mind, but it is not the priority, and you can only have one. So for some of you, the call of Jesus this morning, the way to follow Jesus means you have to demote your family. Stay with me. Because you can't love them as you ought until you demote them. You need the proper distance between you and your family to love your family like you could. Swallow hard. I had a couple come into the uh, office once, and they were well. They were not happy. We'll put it that way. And um, and uh, I did the pyramid with them. I did Plato's triangle, and we got to the top. And and they did it separately. And we got to the top. And she had down spouse, and he had down job. And they shared it for the first time in the office. And when I looked at it, I just went, oh, shoot. She goes, are they different? I went, as far as the east is from the west. Now, now to be fair to him, he was making $265,000 a year. Now, I know some of you be critical about this, but y'all ain't making $265,000 a year. Now, all right, relax. I'm not defending him. His priorities should change. I'm simply making the point. It's easy to be critical when you ain't making $265,000 a year. Okay? It's easy to have priorities. Spouse, hourly wages. Spouse, easy. Wait until they start handing you something. And it will get harder. You'll still do it right because I know you, some of you, but it will be harder for some of you. So when I shared the results, she lost it. She said, how on earth are we supposed to build a strong marriage if he will not make me the first priority? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. But how on earth? Are you supposed to build a strong marriage if you make your marriage the priority? Until you make God the priority of your life. You have no organizing principle. That is your principle. So you will do anything to keep it. And the moment you will do anything to keep something, it's already fragile. It's flawed to begin with. You will drop things to protect that. It isn't safe. You need someone else besides your spouse To be the thing, the person, the purpose that your marriage is being told to. Anyone over 50 will tell you this. We've lived with our spouses for more than 30 years. Listen, we love our wives and our husbands as much as you 30-year-olds do. But we've learned over time that you need something outside of the marriage to make the marriage stronger or it's weak. That will become self-evident to you as you grow older. You will find in the other person that in the best possible situation, they cannot fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. You do not need just a godly husband. You need the Son of God. You need the Son of God. Your relationship can't be your religion. And before you know it, you will make it your religion. And then when something goes wrong with your relationship, and God does not perform up to your expectations, you will start to withdraw. You'll start forming conclusions about him. I thought he was different than that. I thought he was able... You got the wrong pyramid you got the wrong pyramid. Listen to me. Every time Jesus tells you to demote something from the top to second shelf, he is always telling you to trade up. See, that's how we misread this passage. We read all three characters as if this is the expense, the cost of following Jesus. It's not. It's a trade-off, but it's trading up. People think about it. Think about it. What Jesus said was, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you will find rest for your souls. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled and do not let it be afraid. I have said these things, he said, so that in me your joy may be full. He said, up to this time, you have not asked me for anything, but from this time forward, I tell you, ask for anything in my name, and the Father will give it to you. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you really think someone who said all of that is trying to steal your happiness? Dude, he's got enough of his own. He is not after anything you have. You can keep it. You just got to move it down. Or else you cannot possess it the way that you ought. Now, to do that is to organize every other part of your life. Last uh, summer, I'm reading a book about priorities because my life is my junk drawer. And the question that he asked was, what is the one thing that you can do such that by doing it well, you make all other things either easier or unnecessary let me say that in slow motion what is the one thing you could do such that by doing it well you make all other things either easier or unnecessary So what we're looking for when we claim Christ as the priority is a way to reorganize our lives without adding more stuff. We don't need more busyness. So it's not about get up in the morning and have an extra hour with Jesus. Because if you do that, it will just compete with all of the other priorities and then get shoved in the junk drawer. What we're looking is for some organizing principle, and I think that's it. In 1930, Frank Laubach found a thing he called the game with minutes. And the game goes simply like this. One time, every hour in the day, I will ask myself, how is what I am doing right now being done for the glory or purpose of God? Now watch this. I still have to go to the same meetings. I still have to meet the same people, still have the same deadlines and all of the obligations, But because you see what you look for and you hear what you listen for, I'm going into those meetings and having that conversation now with a different overcast. Now I'm asking myself, how can I bring this person together with his God? Same conversation, but I'm looking for something else. And by doing it, I'm taking an ordinary encounter and bringing it into the way of Jesus. So I still got my deadlines, but now I have to do them in a way that the way of Jesus gets precedence. Still tracking? So that's the question. The question is, what is it that you could do this year such that by doing it well... It would make all other things in your Christian life either easier or unnecessary. Then break it down. What could you do in the next week, one thing, such that by doing it, it would make the other thing easier or, uh, you're tracking, right? Then you will have to protect it. Priorities are never safe. There's always other opportunities. Somebody gave me a question once for my work that I think applies here. He said, Steve, what? because of your commitment to do this thing well, what will you not do that everybody thinks you should do because you're going to do that one thing. So, so, so you can't say, I'll stop sinning. Because we don't all think you should sin. You have to find something that is already in your life right now that's pretty fastened down. And because of your commitment to Jesus Christ, you will not do that thing any longer because it no longer Fits the plan. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and, in effect, say, um, I am going to move Christ to the top of the pyramid. Now, I realize for so many of you, you don't know what that means. And you're going you're gonna to push back by saying, how? But understand, sometimes, sometimes asking how is simply a defense mechanism against the action you're supposed to take. The, because the truth is, how is a continuum. It's not either you know how or you don't. It's a 1 to 10. And everything that you know how to do today, you didn't know how to do it when you started. But back then, you decided it was more important to learn it than it was to be frustrated not knowing how to do it. So at the end of the day, what we need, people, are not more instructions. We are chock full of instructions. Instructions. And yet we ask how. The answer to how is yes. Because the answer does not lie somewhere outside of you. In some secret information. The answer lies inside of you. When you have the nerve and the courage to say, I will find a way.